In 2015, a Canadian man by the name of Sheldon Bergson was fed up with how the politicians in his area were acting. People were campaigning for Ontario's uh, legislative uh, positions there in his district, and uh, he just didn't like the way things were going. The candidate, who was the leader in the polls, kept avoiding the press, and when he finally did answer questions from the press, he never really seemed to give a real answer. You know how politicians can be. And the other eight candidates in that field uh, just didn't seem up to the task, and so he decided he was going to run for office himself. One problem, name recognition. No one really knew who Sheldon Bergson was, and so Mr. Bergson came up with an idea. He knew that the ballot, on the ballot, it would list all the names of the candidates in alphabetical order according to their last name. And so Mr. Jones would appear above a Mrs. Smith. You get the idea. And uh, so Mr. Bergson changed his name, and you might think that, well, gee, you know, Bergson, that's going to be pretty high up on, on the list. It might be the first name on the list. But that really wasn't what Mr. Bergson wanted to do. He wanted to be last. And so he changed his first name to the word above and his last name to the word, starting with the letter Z, Z, none of thee. So the last candidate to appear on the ballot would be none of the above. And he thought that would be a good choice for people to make. And you might wonder how he fared in the election. Well, not, not really good. He, he didn't file his paperwork on time. And his name didn't appear on the ballot. But he did change his name uh, to that. And it's on his driver's license and his passport. So in case you run across this guy, you'll know who he is. You know, every so often, none of the above is the answer to a real-life question. Uh, for example, will Pastor Gary or Pastor David uh, receive the Employee of the Month Award for March? None of the above. That would probably be Leah suppose. But, um, here's another one. Will Kansas or Oklahoma be playing in the Final Four this year? None of the above. Here's a theological one. And you know we'd finally get around to the Bible. That's what we kind of do here at church. But here's the, here's the question I want to ask you. Will Jews, Gentiles, or everyone be made right with God by the good deeds they do? The answer is none of the above. You see, in the book of Romans, chapter 3, Paul mentions early on that one of the advantages of being Jewish is that God revealed himself. Think about this. The invisible, eternal God chose to reveal himself to humanity. And he did this by revealing himself to the Jews. And God himself spoke to the Jews. And so they have the oracles of God. However, Paul tells us, this does not mean that Jews automatically get a pass when it comes to being accepted by God. It doesn't mean that all Jews truly have saving faith in God. And faith is necessary in order to be accepted by Him. You see, being found acceptable in God's sight is not a matter of genetics. 
It's not a matter of being a part of a certain group of people. It's not a matter of, well, if I'm a part of this church, God will like me. Or if I'm a part of this other group, God will find me acceptable. It's not about any of that. It requires a personal faith. The book of Hebrews tells us without faith, it is impossible to please God. It requires faith. And so Paul, Paul talks about this in Romans 3. And he also talks about uh, how sometimes people want to justify their sin. And some people in Paul's day might come up with this type of thinking. Well, you know, Paul, it's okay for me to sin because when I sin, you know, I, I sort of display how unrighteous I am and, and it sort of casts a contrast with God. We know that God is so much more righteous than me. And so when I sin, the darker my heart gets, the darker my life, my life gets, the brighter God's glory shines. And Paul takes that argument and he just slaps it down. And he says that's, that's ridiculous to think that you can justify your sin that way. And people in our day, they might, and I know this would never be true of, of any of you, but they might say, well, it's okay to sin. It's okay to do this thing. I know it's wrong, but I mean, it's, it's really okay because, well, you know, I can't lose my salvation. And so my sin actually causes God to have to give me more grace. And so therefore, the more I sin, the more grace God has to give me. Therefore, it's okay. Listen, if your theology, your beliefs about God, causes you to disobey the express command of God, something's very wrong with your theology. Something's very wrong. And you really need to think, rethink it. You see, there's no justification for sin. Sin is wrong. And God doesn't like it. Period. Even if He has provided salvation from the effects of sin, God does not like sin. So it doesn't really matter what your background is. It doesn't matter if you're, if you're Jewish, you're privileged to be Jewish, or it doesn't matter if you're a Gentile like me. When it comes to sin, we're all in the same boat. We all face the same reality that we're guilty before God. And so let's take a little bit more of a journey through the book of Romans. Take your Bible and turn to Romans chapter 3, and we're going to look at verses 9 through 20. In Romans chapter 3, We'll look at verses 9 through 20, and I would ask you to stand with me, please, in honor of the reading of God's Word, Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 20. I'll be reading out loud from the New American Standard Bible, and you can follow along in your Bible or on the screen behind me. Scripture says in Romans chapter 3, verse 9, What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin, as it is written. There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. Verse 12. They have all turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. Their tongue, With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, 
and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And Paul continues in verse 19. He says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would give us insight and understanding into your word so that we might leave changed different than we, the way we came in. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. You know, in literature and movies and stories in general, um, you can pick up on a lot of clues if you pay attention to the details. And one of the most important keys to understanding actually what is being said is to pay attention to whether someone is using first person, second person, or third person. Now, I know that I have very pleased any English teachers in here, and I've very displeased any of you that hate English, because I brought back those memories of first and second and third person. But let's just have a, a quick review. You know what first person is. It means, it means I, or if we're talking about plural, it means we. Second person, singular, is you. Second person, plural, is y'all. That's how we say it here in Texas. And that's why Texan is a better language than English. Because English, you can't, you can't tell. Are they saying you singular or you plural? In Texas, we know whether it's singular or plural. Although contextually, you can talk to one person and say y'all. But you've got to figure that out by, out by context. Nevertheless, second person is you. Third person, it's he or she or them or they. It's, it's a little bit more distant. And let me give you an example about this. Real life example, my mother's cousin, he was a man by the name of uh, Nelson Bridwell, and uh, he's passed away, passed away back in the 80s, around 1985. He was an editor for DC Comics, and uh, he did a lot of work with Superman and Batman, and he had a tremendous memory. He knew everything about any comic strip, especially DC Comics. He had authors of other comic strips, of other characters who would come to him and say, I've, I've just received a letter. How many moons around this planet that I created? I can't remember. And he would, he would spout off the answer right away. He knew everything, absolutely everything there was to know about comics, especially DC comics. And from time to time, he also did some work for a magazine called Mad Magazine. Now, how many of you remember Mad Magazine? Go ahead, raise your hand and confess your sins right now. Okay, good. I see that hand. 1958. Mad Magazine, issue number 38. My mom's cousin, Nelson, wrote a little bit in that magazine called Things You'll Never See in Popular TV Series. And it was just one comic after another. And one of the most uh, popular shows at the time was The Lone Ranger. And if you remember the old Lone Ranger in black and white, you're older than me. But Nelson uh, created this joke about the Lone Ranger, and he put it in comic form for this little bit in Mad Magazine. And you probably have heard of it if you're old enough. The Lone Ranger and his Indian sidekick Tonto find themselves surrounded by wild Indians. And the Lone Ranger says, Indians, Indians, all around us. Well, Tonto, Okimosabe, 
it looks like we're finished. And Tonto famously turns to him and says, what you mean we? That joke became pretty famous in the 60s and 70s, and, and people began to change it ever so slightly. And whenever they wanted to stand up to the man, the powerful white man, they'd say, what you mean we, white man? But he was the one who created the joke. Now, in that joke, the whole gist of that joke is that for Tonto, the Lone Ranger was no longer we. He was going to be you. Or even more distant, he was going to be he. You see, second and third person language serves to put a little distance between people. Paul does this in the book of Romans, if you read it carefully. You see, in Romans chapter 1, verse 18 through 32, Paul talks about them, those people, who are going to fall under God's judgment. Then in Romans 2, verse 1, he talks about you also being guilty under God, under uh, guilty for God's judgment because you do the same things that they do. And yet you judge them. So Paul turns the tables a little bit. By the time you get to Romans 2, verse 17, Paul's talking about the Jews specifically, and he rebukes. You Jews who think that God shows favoritism to you over Gentiles. Even though Paul himself was a Jew, he's talking about Jews as being you. Then in Romans chapter 3, verse 2, he continues to talk about the Jews and he says, They were entrusted with the oracles of God. Now, unlike Tonto, who distanced himself from the Lone Ranger, Paul goes the other direction. Paul draws himself closer to his fellow Jews by using the word we. In verse 9, look at that. What then? Are we Jews better than they? Gentiles is what he means. Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. Here's Paul's point. When it comes to sin, there's no advantage for being a Jew. Why? Because all of us, Jew or Gentile alike, have sinned. All of us have fallen. And unless God intervenes somehow then all of us are under the dominion, the rule, the reign of this power we call sin. And so then Paul is going to sort of unpack this claim. He's going to expand on this idea. And to do that, Paul goes to the Hebrew Scriptures and he quotes a number of Hebrew Scriptures in verses uh, 10 through 18. And so look at verses 10 through 12. All of this comes from one scripture in, in Psalm 14, in verses 10 through 12. It's a, he, Paul writes, as it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. 
He's quoting Psalm 14. And you might not be real familiar with Psalm 14. It's not as famous as Psalm 23, for example. But I bet you understand how it begins. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. That's the psalm Paul is quoting here. Paul makes this case that all humanity has turned from God. Who is righteous? No one. Who understands God's mind? No one. Who seeks after God? No one. And you might say, well, wait a minute, preacher. I've sought after God. Yeah, that may be true. But the only reason that any sinner seeks after God is because God first draws that sinner to himself. Left to your own devices, you would not seek after God. Who has turned aside from the right way to live? Everyone. Who is useful for God's service and God's kingdom? No one. But Paul's not finished. You see, the sinfulness of humanity is more than just some type of existential condition. It's more than just some type of metaphysical reality out there where some, someone might pick up a theological textbook and go, oh, that's nice, hmm, good, nice to know. Nobody's perfect. It's more than that. Because sin affects our speech. Verses 13 and 14. He says, their throat is an open grave. Their tongue, with their tongues, they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Not only does it affect our speech, but it affects our actions as well. Look at verse 15. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Okay, when was the last time that you honestly said to yourself, you know what? My throat is an open grave. I kill people with my speech. You know what? The poison of vicious, venomous snakes is on my lips, and it strikes out against every person in my life even those that I love. When was the last time you honestly thought these types of things about yourself? When was the last time you said, you know what's wrong with my feet? My feet run as fast as they can to shed blood, to cause destruction wherever I go. I mean, honestly, we don't think of ourselves that way, do we? I mean, even if we confess to God, okay, you got me, I'm a sinner. Even if we confess to God that we're sinners, we don't think of ourselves as being that bad, right? I mean, bad people are murderers and liars and cheats, right? Not me. But what did Jesus say about murder? How did he interpret the Ten Commandments? Didn't he say something to the effect of you're guilty of murder if in your heart you hate somebody. You hate somebody. And every single one of us here 
have had the opportunity to hate somebody because somebody's done us wrong. Somebody hasn't treated us with respect. Somebody has harmed us or God forbid they've harmed our children. And we want to hate that person. We wish they were dead. In our hearts, we're guilty of murder. In our hearts. It's a heart condition. And so, we deal with this, and maybe, most likely, the psalmist is right about our mouth and our feet and our heart being exceedingly wicked, more so than we ever really want to admit. So sin is very pervasive. It does affect our speech, it affects our mouth, and, and sin is so pervasive that it destroys everything around us. Verse 16, look at this. It says, destruction and misery are in their paths. How many marriages do you personally know of that have been destroyed by sin? Never to be fixed again. How many lives do you know of that have been absolutely devastated because of someone's sin? Sin is not just an action. Sin is not the end result of the word that you say. Sin is not just something that you happened to do at some point in time. Sin itself is a power. It is a force, a living power that is within the heart of man. The good news is that grace is a power and it is more powerful than sin. There's coming a day when sin and all of its effects will die. It will cease to exist. But grace will live on. The grace of God will live on. What do I mean by grace? I mean that even right now, not just coming in that day, but even right now, God's grace means that He can take struggling marriages and fix them. The grace of God means that He can take broken marriages and put them back together. God can take a broken life and put it together in such a way that it is more beautiful than it ever was before. And I don't know exactly how God does this, but He does. He does this. This is what God does. But if you are the person that's in need of having that marriage or that life or whatever it might be fixed, and if you don't reach out to God, if you don't respond to God's call upon your life who, who says, Come, let's reason together. Let's talk it out. Come to me. I'm ready for you. If you refuse to take God's offer of grace, then you will miss it. You'll never know the peace of God. Verse 17, let's move on. It says, And the path of peace they have not known. I believe that the experience of having peace is one of the most powerful differences 
between those that know the Lord Jesus Christ and those who don't. Years ago, a friend of mine and I were attempting to share the gospel with a man in his own home, and he had been through some very difficult times in Vietnam. I mean, he had seen some things that humans ought not see. He had been through some very bad experiences in the Vietnam War. And in his mind, he had come to the conclusion, wrongly, but he came to the conclusion that God does not exist. He had fallen prey to this common misconception that somehow the evil perpetrated by man determines whether God exists. And this man became, I mean, he just remained unconvinced of the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ, no matter how we present it, no matter how we try to uh, answer any objections that uh, he, he raised. But when we finally mentioned the peace of God that we had in our lives, he took notice of that. And he said, and I don't think I'll ever forget it, he said, peace is something that I don't have. And I want it. I've mentioned before the dynamic that many of us have witnessed, the despair of unbelievers at funerals, and the dichotomy between it and, and those that are believers. And I think about my own life, and I've been very blessed. I'm 49 years old. I turned half a century this year. Half a century. That's pretty, that's pretty crazy. That's historic. Anyway, I'm 49, and both of my parents are still alive. Very blessed. Very blessed. I understand that. And I don't, I don't understand what it's like to lose a parent. Okay? I do know this, just logically, I don't know by experience, that on the day that my mom or dad pass away, that will be a brand new day for me. Because 49 years, every single day, I've always had my mom and dad. I can call them. I can go visit them in their home. Um, we can we can have a meal together. But on on that day, once that comes, that'll be new. Christmas will be different. Thanksgiving birthdays. No more phone calls. It's going to be different. And I know that on the that on the days when either of them pass away and the days following that, that I'm going to go through mourning, serious grieving. I know that. It's part of who we are to go through this type of thing. But I won't have despair. Not the kind of despair that I see from people that don't know the Lord. You see, my mom and dad know the Lord. And I know on that day when they pass away and that funeral time comes and go to the graveside and all of that, that I'm going to be sad. But my goodbye will be a I'll see you soon. I'll see you again. But I'm sad for now. But for people who don't know the Lord, it is final. That goodbye is a forever goodbye. When they bury their mother or their father, or even a child, which is the hardest thing that anyone could ever go through, I'm told, by those that have lost a child. Because it's not the way of the world. The way of the world 
is for parents to bury their, or for children to bury their parents, not the other way around. But even when a child dies in the home of a Christian family, there's great grief. But there's a promise. I'll see you again. There will be a reunion someday. And it won't be real long. It may seem long. But in the grand scheme of things, we'll look back a thousand years from now. And we'll say, oh, I, I barely remember that time that we were apart. Because we've been together for so long again. The lost person doesn't have that. There's no peace. There's hopelessness. There's despair. Paul is right when he quotes the scripture in verse 17, the path of peace they have not known. If you know Christ, then you will experience and know peace. But without Christ, you don't have it. Verse 18 one more scripture he quotes. There is no fear of God before their eyes. You know, when I think about the fear of God, I'm always taken back to Proverbs. In the book of Proverbs, uh, it famously says that the fear of God is the beginning of knowledge, the beginning of wisdom. The fear of God. Where does wisdom begin? It begins with fearing God. What does that mean? What's it mean to fear God? To have the fear of God means that you have a proper understanding of the power of God, the righteousness of God. You have an understanding that you'll be held accountable by God. And so therefore you have a respect for God's commands. Even if you fail to meet them all the time, you respect the command of God. This is from God. This is what God says. But if we don't fear God, then we're just going to disregard and disobey God's law. Verse 19 says, "For Now we know... That whatever the law, that's the law of God, the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. You see, all of us are, are subject to God's law because we all know God's law. God's law is written in His holy word, the Bible. And even if you were to tell me, I've never read the Bible before, therefore I'm not accountable. Oh, yes, you are. Because the law of God is written on the heart of every human. We know what is right. We know what is wrong. It is written on our hearts. You know, a lot of people these days like to complain about God. They say, well, why doesn't God do something about all the evil in the world? Like what? Judge it? Are you sure that's what you want? You who complain against God? Do you want him to judge your evil heart or just someone else's? In due time, God will. He will judge the heart. And on that day, you won't hear anyone complaining about God because everyone will know that God is righteous. Every mouth will be shut. Everyone will know that God is right. And every complaint against him has been wrong. So how can we escape the judgment of God? 
Listen, if you've broken God's law, as I have, as you have, if you've broken God's law, is there something we can do to undo the damage, to reverse it all, to make it go away? I mean, can I somehow undo God's uh, judgment against me by engaging in good works? I mean, I've done some bad things. What if I do some good things? Won't that sort of balance it out? You know, won't that sort of wipe it away? No, not at all. Verse 20. It says, because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Listen to me. You cannot undo your bad deeds with good deeds any more than you can add a good egg to an omelet that you've already filled with bad eggs. If you were to take an omelet made with rotten eggs and add some good ones to it, there's not a person in this room that would accept it. No thank you, I'm not hungry. And neither does God, whose standards are so much more holy and righteous than ours, accept the rottenness of our souls that we've created with the rotten eggs of our bad works. No amount of good works can undo it. The only way to undo the effect of your sin is to appeal to God for forgiveness and salvation. You must have faith in Christ.